Hi, everybody. Dr. Sammy here, your friendly neighborhood entomologist. I hope you packed your bathing suit, because this week, we're going for a swim. All right, so just imagine, you're immersed in cool seawater just above the coral reef, fully prepared for the experience in your scuba suit. You're observing curious fish surrounding a mesmerizing octopus, when all of a sudden, blam, pow, it's like something out of an old comic. This cephalopod is punching fish like a 1960s crime fighter punches bank robbers. You may have actually watched the video footage from this scene before. Thanks to research from the Faculty of Science at the University of Lisbon and a paper called Octopuses Punch Fishes During Collaborative Interspecific Hunting Events, it attracted a lot of attention in the news and on social media because, well, who isn't fascinated to hear about feisty octopuses? This paper was published in the journal Ecology in December of 2020 and was shared by its first author, Eduardo Sampaio, in a tweet. And seeing as Eduardo is today's guest, why not let him read it for us? Take it away, Eduardo. So our tweet was, uh, octopuses punch fishes. Yes, octopuses punch fishes. Our new paper is out on ESA Ecology, showing that octos express this behavior during collaborative hunting with other fishes. This was probably the most fun I ever had writing a paper, like ever. <laughs> and it remains true. That is awesome. Uh, and FYI, if you want to watch the video, go to Octo Eduardo on Twitter. Great handle, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> so let's dive right in. This tweet really shows your passion for the research. Do you find that your enthusiasm as a science communicator is mirrored by news outlets and the response of the public? So the outlet response was very enthusiastic as well, which I, I was expecting that because the, the octopus is a, very, is a flagship species. Mm. So like everyone is very, feels very connected to the animal. We also had the Netflix show, The Octopus Teacher, mm -hmm. which had a lot of media attention and a lot of, uh, a lot of audience. Uh, so I was, I was expecting that this would be uh, noticed. Uh, what I wasn't expecting was that what would be more noticed in the in the paper? Um, so they, the news outlets kind of went one way where I thought that that uh, it would make sense, but um, but yeah, I'm excited to get back to what exactly the reporters got wrong about this. But before we can really jump into that, I want to make sure that the listeners actually know what this study shows. So can you tell us how this study came to be? So our main interest in the study was that first, uh, or until now, most of the literature refers to these uh, hunting groups of an octopus and several fish as a nuclear follower model, in the sense that you have the octopus in the center of the group, and he creates prey opportunities, and the fish are only there to exploit the octopus. Uh, and this did not make sense. Uh, with other with other observations we did, where we saw that the octopus would actually actively follow the fish around. So what we were planning to capture is, was to basically to understand how these groups move and who is, who is basically the leader and the follower of the movement in the group. Because we knew, like I said, we knew that this fish and the octopus were hunting together. We weren't just sure if it was like a merely exploitative mm -hmm. scenario or if there was more of a, um, 
a tit for tat mm -hmm. situation where both where both the the animals benefit. And while we were filming these interactions, we saw uh, the octopus doing basically what we call technically as an active displacement hmm. of the of the partner, which was basically a punch, like with one arm, a very directed movement, a very intentional movement. And it, this was amazing. Like first time we saw it, we just we just started laughing immediately. <laughs> and actually the record the recording for the from the first time was ruined because I started laughing and the camera started shaking all over and I had to remove one hand to adjust uh, the regulator and stuff. So it was completely messed up. And so I've I've spent some time looking at contexts where organisms are working together in this interspecific context, and they kind of have to uh, punish cheaters in different areas and really make sure that the, make sure that the system continues to move along smoothly. Do you feel that uh, these these interactions that you're seeing here are really important to keep the dynamic together? Yes, so exactly. So I we believe that the, the punches basically serve as a partner control mechanism mm. basically to regulate the behavior of the other animals in the group. Because when the octopus is hunting, if he is feeling exploited, uh, aside from the partner control mechanisms, he can only do two things. Either he stops hunting and he has a cost because of that, or he goes back to the den and he also has a cost because he's not acquiring prey. Uh, the fish, on the other hand, can actually just leave the group because they're faster than the octopus. The octopus, since he has to stay in the group, he actually seems to have uh, evolved or, or adapted one of its behaviors as a partner control mechanism in order to regulate the behavior of the fish that, that sometimes misbehave or capture a prey that was not meant for them, so to speak. So then that brings me back to a subject that we were addressing in the beginning. I noticed a lot of articles said the octopuses were punching because of spite. Why do you think the media focused so much on the concept of spite? So I think that the main reason for that is because it's emotional, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it has an emotional connotation. And basically this would infer that the octopus has emotions mm -hmm. and they are doing that uh, in terms of emotions of, oh, I had a prey stolen from me, so I'm going to make you suffer. Uh, and I think that's the angle they took. And the first time I saw this, I was thinking like, no, that's not actually what, it, what we meant because we write it as an ecological mechanism. Mm -hmm. So in ecology and in game theory, when you, when you call a situation spite, it just means that the actor and the recipient are both uh, having costs from the interaction. Mm. So it's a spite it's it's a spiteful behavior in the sense that no one is gaining anything from it. Interesting. Uh, but it doesn't have any emotional connotation behind it. But at the time as I was writing this, maybe I was a bit too uh, embroiled on the nomenclature mm -hmm. of the field and did not realize that for the the general audience, uh, spite would come across as a, an emotional state. Yes. 
it, it makes a lot of sense with the, the whole spite concept becoming such a major focus. Uh, there's, there's a lot of excitement on the internet around organisms behaving like people, and especially organisms that look pretty distant from people. When you're working with a cephalopod, there's not a lot of ways that you can impose a, uh, an anthropomorphized uh, look on this creature. But the idea that these octopodes are running around just punching creatures out of spite, uh, is it, it almost seems like it's made for the internet. Uh, so I wonder, do you regret the usage of the term spite in the paper? Like, was there another way to articulate it that you would uh, have gone with now, knowing how the internet is attached to that? So, I mean, in hindsight, we can all, we always feel that we can do better, mm -hmm. right? Um, but what I felt at the time was if someone is reading this and they are in a context of ecology, uh, they will be reading it as the the definition per se mm -hmm. in Tim Clattenbrock's paper mm -hmm. that we that we actually refer to at the end of the sentence. Uh, but as the internet is is basically the home of uh, out of context uh, quotes, <laughs> uh, that did not go so well. Uh, so I don't know what I would do in the sense because that's the actual name of the ecological scenario. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's not something I can change. I think it's hard. Maybe I should have been more clear in terms of the definition per se of costs for both the animals and no no emotional connotation, basically. What did you think was the most interesting finding of this study that maybe was lost in all of the discussions of spiteful octopuses? Yeah. So I think that the most interesting theoretical scenario is basically the next one. So we've seen a lot of interactions with the octopus and the fish where the octopus just punched the fish and then uh, got prey. And in that case, it has a very simple ecological explanation, uh, which is a, a self-serving behavior. So he's basically just moving fish from the, the, the buffet line to get there first. Um, but in other cases, what we saw was that the fish were getting punched without the octopus having prey immediately afterwards, so without immediate benefits. So that leaves us two, uh, two hypotheses. One hypothesis is that the octopus just punches not caring about benefits, and that's the spite case, or the much more interesting hypothesis is that the octopus is punching on that interaction so that in subsequent interactions during the hunt, the fish is now more collaborative. Hmm. So this would entail uh, the definition of punishment, of doing a momentarily costly action to have a better performance of both the animals in the future. And that, of course, can entail the recognition of having subsequent interactions with the fish and the fish with the octopus, which is actually much more interesting in terms of, uh, I mean, in terms of ecology and even of psychology, if you think about it, it's much more interesting if to have, for the animals to have some sort of awareness of a future uh, than, than doing everything in, the, in that specific interaction. Oh, Oh, that's a really good point. The awareness of the future element of it is absolutely fascinating to think uh, if I punch this fish now, uh, it will be more collaborative in the future because it's aware of who's boss in this context and that there are consequences to its actions. That would make a great headline, in my opinion. <laughs> in my own experience, 
I've noticed that sometimes when researchers interface in this enthusiastic and engaging manner that you've shown, um, like the way that you incorporate memes or humor in SciComm on Twitter, they can be considered to be less serious about their work than more stoic researchers. Have you noticed this at all in your experience? Actually, no, not mm. at all. In my case, I didn't feel that anyone basically downgraded my science because I was trying to... Also because I was getting really funny uh, interactions on Twitter. <laughs> oh, yes. And I thought that these people are actually experiencing what I was experiencing when I saw the, when I saw the punching and was writing the paper. So they, it was a very nice feedback to have. And I feel that in the, in, so in the Twitter bubble of my thread, it was, it was very well addressed and civilized. And I, I always explained what was maybe badly uh, interpreted. And it was actually a very good way. The Twitter thread was actually very a good way to at least with some people um, make it clear, like clear what we meant and make it specific and uh, and clarifying what we what we were saying on the paper, which is something that I didn't have the chance to do for audiences of the Times, for example, because mm. they just printed something. And then I was trying to reach them and say, I mean, what they said was, uh, since it's a lighthearted story, mm -hmm. they took more liberties with ah. it. And I, I was replying, okay, it's okay to take liberties. I understand you want to have uh, audiences and people engaged. But there's, there's a, let's say there's a line where you shouldn't cross of misinformation and mm. uh, entertainment, so to speak. There's something that I've been thinking about. So you're a PhD student at the University of Lisbon, and not only are you publishing a paper in the prestigious journal Ecology, but you've also got all of this media interest that arose around it. I mean, there were thousands of engagements with the video that you posted to Twitter. How did all of that feel? So it was very overwhelming at first hmm. because uh, I was, I don't know, I would go to sleep and then in the next day I would wake up and have 1,000 likes and 100-something comments and mm. messages and people trying to monetize the videos to to pass on to, to shows like, uh, oh. saying names like at <laughs> random, but like a Jimmy Kimmel show or, <laughs> or something like that. And I was always telling these people, like, the paper is open access. If you want the videos, you can take the videos. You don't. You don't need to pay me for anything or whatever. Hmm. And um, I have also. I uh, also have to say that at first doing interviews for the radio, like live, it was it was very intimidating. Even if it's for five minutes or something, because you know it's something that's going to be heard by millions afterwards. And but it was a nice experience, I, I think, overall, because it, it made me grow as well as a as a person more to be more to be calmer and mm. to to know as well as a researcher how to present my my research better to the public and make it in a more understandable way and in a way that can both engage and be informative at the same time it's not as easy as as some people make it uh, seem. Hmm, definitely. Uh, I'm really glad to see that this experience has been able to teach you a lot of uh, a lot about it and things that you can convey to us that we can learn about how to be engaging and accurate. So thank you very much for being with us today. No, oh, my pleasure. Eduardo Sampaio is a PhD student with the Faculty of Science at the University of Lisbon. He joined us from Lisbon, Portugal.
Thank you so much for listening to This Study Show's Spotlight. If you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research or tweet me at Dr. Sammy Tweets. This Study Show's Spotlight is presented by me, Dr. Samuel Ramsey, and it's made for Wiley Research by Listen Entertainment and is produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer for Listen is Nick Minter, and the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.